Do you have a story to tell? Here at Rider on the Road, it's the journey that matters. Regardless of where you are on your riding journey, Rider on the Road will inspire you to take your dreams and make them happen. So sit back and enjoy the show as Melinda brings you guests who know what it's like to go it alone and who are willing to reach out to the rest of us by sharing their stories. Authors, publishers, entrepreneurs, people at all stages of the riding journey, just like you and me. It's time, dear listeners, to answer the question for yourselves. Do you have a story to tell? And welcome to a very special Christmas episode of Writer on the Road. I have with me today one of my favourite writers in the whole world who's been with me here at Writer on the Road since the beginning. I'd like to welcome Darry Fraser. Hi, Darry. Hi, Mel. How are you going? Thanks for having me once again. Uh, I'm really excited to have you, Darry, and everyone. This woman is delightful. Uh, we first met over Darry's first novel, Daughter of the Murray. Then we've got Where the Murray River Runs. But now we're celebrating book number three and the most beautiful book of all, and the first two have done really well. Congratulations on The Widow of Ballarat, Darry. Oh, thank you. It was, it was um, a wonderful um, experience to be writing uh, this particular book, so I'm, I'm hoping that it'll do, it'll do well. Yeah. Now, I think uh, Darry has a reputation, everyone, of being very shy and um, <laughs> retiring. But the fact is, the actual fact is, and I've heard this straight from uh, some really good authors who know, that your books, Darry, are doing not only really, really well, but probably they're some of the best sellers here in Australia at the moment. Well, uh, that's wonderful news. <laughs> there you go. That's wonderful news. Um, people who know me here probably wouldn't say I was shy of retiring, but certainly with um, uh, the books, I, I actually don't have a sense of how they're doing out there. I'm very grateful that people are happy for me and uh, reading my books and, and uh, contacting me about them. Um, and look, as long as I'm doing what I love to do and somebody else is loving to read them, I'm, I'm more than happy. Yeah, now we're going to unpack that, everyone. Uh, the other name that I heard mentioned in conjunction with yours, and this is another lady we have on the podcast, everyone, uh, the beautiful Tia Cooper. She's doing very well as well. Yes, Tia. Uh, we have very, very different styles, of course, and very different interests in our um, uh, history uh, in the sense that um, uh, Tia seems to focus on... Um, I think it's called a time slip where we might have dual timelines. Oh, she did anyway in the last book. Um, and she's got a very easy style. I, I love to sort of dip in and out of, of her books and, and pick up where I left off. And, um, yeah, it's quite interesting to look at another um, historical fiction author's style. Yeah. Now, Dari, everyone lives, I don't think I'm giving any secrets out here. She lives on the beautiful Kangaroo Island and her books clearly set on the Murray River. I don't even know why I bothered to mention that. But you're in a great part of the world for Australian history, aren't you? Uh, that's correct. Um, people have asked why I don't, uh, now that I'm published with HarperCollins, why I don't focus on my own area a little bit more. I'll leave that to other people. But um, certainly history, certainly 19th century history, uh, there was a, a lot of um, uh, events and so on and so forth to draw upon here. But the things that interest me about that time of year are, are relationships between people and and clearly the same things uh, affect or had affected people then as they do now. So relationships between people and how events affect them 
such as in the river of Ballarat and the uh, Eureka Stockade have been um, have been the sort of thing that drives my story. So I, I guess that's not unlike other authors, but um, you seem to steep yourself in the moment back yeah. then. And I, th- I think what I like uh, to everyone, and I know Claire Wright wrote the um, the women of um, the goldfield story, and she's now moved on to the suffragettes. Is her newest one, I think. Um, but that's in nonfiction. But to have these stories come alive for the rest of us and give us very strong heroines uh, with real problems too uh, must be must be really, I guess, rewarding for you. Um, rewarding. Um I think to be able to take the heroine from a very dire situation and allow her to remove herself from that situation has been something um, uh, I've been glad to be able to do. Uh, but Claire Wright and Dorothy Wickham have both got books out about that particular era in Ballarat um, and women on the goldfields. And um, I think we we tend to let it all slip by us that women put up with all this stuff because they had to, not because they wanted to. A lot of them didn't know any different. And so it was just part of the course, which has been the way it's been for centuries and centuries. But suddenly in uh, the 1850s, especially at Ballarat Goldfields, women realised they could do a lot more. And that was very interesting to me. Mm. Yeah, and I've just completed a Talk of the Town storytelling tour here of Brisbane, everyone, where the beautiful Natalie Cowling brought or brings alive uh, local history, local Queensland history, and she brought together 26 amazing women from our pioneers days. And when you listen to the talks, that we have scientists, we have our first lawyer in Queensland, we have the colonial wives who... Um, are women, strong women in their own right, even though the governors and the men get all the name, we all the um, glory, I guess. We have what we know as, and it's coming from late 19th century history, everyone, uh, the Australian legend, and they're all masculine. So in a way, with your research, you'd come across some very strong women, wouldn't you? There, there are very strong women, and I think the, the general assumption is that, as you say, the men did all the work, but let's face facts, there's... Um, there's no men doing all this wonderful stuff without the women behind them. So it's just assumed that we were there without our actually taking uh, the spotlight, if you like. Um, uh, there were amazing women on the goldfields. Um, Carolyn Chisholm even visited the, the goldfields. So prior to the Eureka Stockade and uh, wrote letters on behalf of uh, both men and women after the stockade event. Um, but she she did a lot of what I would call social work in the day um, and yet died a, a pauper in back in the UK, virtually unknown uh, for what she'd done out here. Um, and there were a lot of women uh, in her situation because they didn't... Uh, didn't have men to push them to the fore after um, uh, they'd done their work. So uh, there was no platform for women to get up and do what they wanted to do. And I think there's a delightful saying, um, no shy retiring woman in history was ever taken any notice of or worse to that effect. So uh, in our first podcast chat, everyone, we talked about uh, 
you know, I guess writing a story and how long it takes and gaining that confidence to to put your work out there. Now, that was a huge step for you, wasn't it, putting that first manuscript out there uh, when it was picked up, um, you know, The Daughter of the Murray. That was a journey for you, wasn't it? Uh, it certainly was. I started and finished um, my first draft, if you like, of that book in 18, 1882. There you go. In 1982, not that old. And, uh, uh, of course, All the Rivers Run just hit the telly and uh, it just took off. And because my book was um, about a, a young woman taking to the river on her own paddle steamer, working her own business and whatever, um, it was too close to all the, the rivers run. So I put it aside for years and years and years and years and years. I kept writing uh, in the closet, if you like, and uh, with circumstances that hit me uh, quite late, I guess, around about 2013 or 14, I thought, I don't have much time anymore to do the thing I, I, I want to do. Um, you know, when you're in your 20s, you have all the time ever um, when you uh, track down those years a little bit, you know. So anyway, I decided it's now or never. So I pulled this manuscript out that I've been dabbling in over the years, refined it, pulled my big girl's pants on and decided to go pitch it to a publisher at a conference. That was in 2015. And in 2016, Daughter of Murray was published of that same first draft. Well, with a lot of work, but yes. So I was very lucky. Yeah. Now, having had that very, I guess, uh, that start where the confidence isn't isn't there to now where you are launching very successfully your third strongly received novel, you're being asked and recognised a lot more, aren't you? Uh, yes, that seems to be the case. Um, <laughs> I, I, I know, I'm, I'm well known here on the island because there's a lot of people who are well known here on the island and it's just island life. People know you in the streets, stop you in the supermarket and so on and so forth. So there's nothing unusual for me here. It's when I go, I nearly said abroad, when I go onto the mainland, um, <laughs> uh, you know, I'm, I'm still in that regard totally unassuming. So um, I'm quite delighted when somebody says, oh, I recognise your face from somewhere or other and... Uh, Oh, I've got to go and buy a book so you'll sign it for me. And I, I just think that is totally, absolutely delightful. But I never, I have never, and I hope I do never, ever presume that um, I will be well-received wherever I go or that my books will be well-received. Well and that, that actually keeps me on my toes, well and truly on my toes. Yeah. Now, you've got the third book published. It's We're doing a soft launch at the moment. When is the yes. official launch? The official launch is Wednesday the 28th of November in Adelaide at Dimmick Scundle Mall and uh, at six o'clock and um, that's going to be very, very lovely. Yeah. Very, very uh, and as we know in the field of traditional publishing, everyone now, Darry's with Harper, Harper Collins, is it? Uh, yeah. You would already be either finished or getting ready to finish your next novel. Uh, the next novel is said and done and I met my deadline screaming into uh, the deadline by a couple of days and that's uh, with the publishers at the moment and that, if that's accepted, which fingers crossed it will be, uh, it will be published this time next year. So that one will be what we think might be the last of the Murray books. 
So we've got Daughter of the Murray, Where the Murray River Runs, and this something something Murray something something titled book in November of next year. So that's uh, that's that's done, said and done. Mm. Yeah, and it's interesting as um, because traditional publishing takes so much longer than indie publishing, but your reputation grows with every book that you put out. You have got a little Christmas book out at the moment as part of an anthology. Yes, that's right. I was asked throughout the year whether or not um, I could write 30,000 words on um, on a historical uh, story for for Christmas. So I, of course, had to research Santa. And um, uh, I, I say it very quietly, I'm a little bit of a Grinch around Christmas time, but I do love the whole Santa thing, um, especially Australian Santa. So I wanted to try and find something that would, first of all, fire my imagination. And when I found the two things I needed, that 30,000 words went down quicker than I think I've ever written anything. And um, I so enjoyed that story. I'm, I'm a little bit in love with it myself and it almost feels like Shep and his team, the people in the story, just sat alongside me at the campfire and, and uh, took me away. So when you hear writers talk about their muse and whatever, sometimes it, it's just absolute magic that it comes to you the way it does. And um, Santa, Santa wasn't as well known then as we presume he might have been. Um, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer wasn't even around then. He he came about in in the 1920s. So that was. I'm very glad I didn't. I'm very glad I did do my Santa research. Um, and of course, Santa himself in the 1890s was doing his research in Outback Australia. So I had lots of fun. Lots and of fun. You you get you get a sense, everyone, of the deep love of history that Darry has, and I'm sure we talked about that in some great detail in the last podcast, so I won't reference that so we don't cover the same material. Uh, now, the book we're talking about is called Our Country Christmas, and it's got some of our beautiful authors. It's got um, Darry, Fiona Lowe, Jackie Underdown, who we've had on the podcast, uh, Penelope Janu, which she and I have been meaning to catch up for some time, and Eva Scott, and it's Our Country Christmas. Darry's story is called The Drover Comes Home for Christmas, and it's got this beautiful painting, this beautiful outback scene, isn't it, um, down among the gum trees, I'm guessing, with the campfire. That painting is what triggered it, isn't it? It is. Um, there was a graphic artist uh, in the um, uh, 1960s here by the name of Jack Waugh, and I'm sure many, many Australian people re- remember the lovely Santa and the Drover uh, painting that was featured in the Woman's Weekly at the time and also on the back of the Arnott's biscuit tins. And I remember as a kid staring at that painting and delighting in the absolute magic that leapt out from me uh, at that painting. Now, if you ever get a, a look at it, you can see in the background there's the drover's horse looking at the reindeer, and then there's a little, like his kelpie, his sheepdog, sat by Shep's or the drover's knee, and he's looking back at the reindeer as if, what the? And uh, it, it was just such an inspirational painting. Um, so I decided that um, I would try to see whether or not Jack Waugh's family was still around. I found them, I contacted them, and whilst I was too late to put the acknowledgement in the book for them, they are acknowledged on my website as being the family of, of Jack Waugh and, and um, 
Uh, I'm quite sure his paintings have delighted other people of my vintage, if you like, for a number of years. But um, uh, although Santa in my story didn't have his red suit on, um, uh, he, he was he was very much fun to to have in the story. Yeah, I'm very aware of copyright. Am I allowed to put that photo up? Uh, on the podcast image or have you, did you have to get copyright permission? No, I, it's out there in the public and, and the family are more than happy to um, uh, have their, their dad's work out there. Um, so uh, I can certainly um, contact John War, the one of the sons, and let him know that this is happening. And there are only two delighted, two delighted to have their dad's work still doing, doing its magic. Yeah, and I think that's one of the rewards of, uh, I guess, writing historical fiction and writing about early Australia, which, thank heavens, everybody has come um, so much back into fashion with you guys doing these beautiful historical novels uh, because I, lo- I love Australian history and I'm trying to do some myself, but I keep getting distracted. Uh, you mentioned that you are writing more and more and you've got the little 30,000 novella happening or it happened. Are you going to be doing more of those sort of side projects as well as your big novel a year? Um, I'm hoping to. I think uh, now that I've, I've understood my own process, I, I hope that the publishers uh, will ask me to do more. Um, in, in the mix with the um, Mira book, the HarperCollins book, uh, there was the 30,000 words. I've also finished another historical that is being privately commissioned. Um, and then for The Widow of Ballarat, I was asked to do a prequel. And uh, um, so that was 4,000 words. And um, then I was uh, asked to do another 4,000-word uh, prequel. So um, they're keeping me busy. I hope that's going to be the case uh, this year. But um, it's always a surprise to me what they come up with. I do believe that there are other things out there uh, working away. Yeah. I'd love to know about um, prequels. That's the first I've heard of them. What what do publishers use those for? Okay. For The Widow of Ballarat, um, uh, it was decided to try something a little different, especially as I'd established with the first two novels and that they had been really well received. Um, the prequel, and, and I did have to clarify what I needed, I, I found it a, a bit difficult to separate myself from the actual story. So... I was given a um, an out, outline, if you like, of what they required, and it it really quite stumped me. So, I chose a character from the book who wasn't the main character, and I tried to give her um, pre story and um, a pre story event that would sort of funnel readers towards the widow of Ballarat. So. The widow herself, her name is Nell, and her friend is named Flora. So the prequel is from Flora's point of view. It does give the reader a couple of signposts about what might be happening, but I had to be so careful I didn't uh, give anything away at the main book and also uh, to keep it interesting. But um, from Flora's point of view, it was more about the rumblings on the goldfields before the actual battle, and there were many, many months building up to the actual battle itself. So um, the prequel um, it, it was was good to do, um, but I also had to be very careful not to overshadow what was in the main book. I don't know if I got it right, but um, it's out there. It's called Hill of Gold. 
So what do the publishers do? Those these are just pe- these, these are just stories to whet people's appetites, are they? That's right. Yeah. And and how yeah. do the publish them? How do the publishers get them out to? Uh, it's it's ebook only, and it's free of charge. Yep. Um, you could go to amazon.com.au and Google my name, and Hill of Gold will be there to download free of charge. Um, it, you could um, uh, decide to read that first. Um, or, or not, it's, it doesn't sort of it doesn't sort of change things. It's an added layer, if you like. Um, I believe there might be another one to come out later, but they, they also might choose not to publish that one. Um, so yes, the projects have been ongoing, um, and hopefully it all it all helps with how widow flies. Yeah. Now this is really interesting, everyone. I have. I wonder if publishers have always done this, or whether this is just one way of them. Um, I guess maintaining a presence on in the ebook market with their top authors and giving something away for free in order to get people to buy the main novels. Is this is this something new? Do you know that, or have they always done it? I'm not sure that they've always done it, but I think they're having a look at their stats, and they do know that when you offer something for free. Uh, you can get quite good hits on it. Um, I, I don't tend to look at a lot of the stats on uh, Amazon, for instance, although I did sneak a peek and uh, when it first came out, it it was holding its own in the top 10 Kindle for something or other. Um, uh, and so hopefully that's piqued interest in uh, certainly this book if people don't know um, my other books. And one of the other things they've done for the very same reason is uh, put Daughter of the Murray up as a uh, giveaway feature on uh, their new website called romance.com.au. Now, it was up there for free yesterday uh, or part of the, the newsletter uh, giveaway yesterday. And also, I believe it's it's free on um, yeah, Amazon.com on your, your Kindle so Daughter of the Murray, up until yesterday anyway, um, was uh, uh, free of charge. Yeah, now I, yeah, I did try, I did go onto that romance.com when you told me that, Darian, I did try to find it, but I didn't have much luck, everyone, so I hope you have more luck than me. Um, but we can jump onto Amazon and grab Daughter of the Murray. Um, I, I think I bought, I bought the very first one when we chatted last time, um, which is Daughter of the Murray. I've already got it. I, what do I need it twice for, Barry? Um, but Widow of the Murray, I jumped on and I bought that this morning, so I'm not oh. sure when I get that. Um, uh, in the in the in the book. Uh, in ebook. Ebooks. That should drop into your Kindle straight away. It's out there. Well, I bought it, then I went to the market. So I'm just seeing if it's here, everyone. Um, because, you know, when I do these interviews, I research very thoroughly. So the first thing I do is buy the book. So I bought it, but I haven't checked if it came through or not. How slack am I? Uh, yes, there it is. Widow of Ballarat. I have it and I own it. And I can't ah. tell you what it's like because I haven't read it yet. I'll read it this afternoon. Uh, now, moving right along, we want to talk about what you've learned about the writing process. And this is this is the reason I got Derry back, everyone, to, to watch an author's overnight success that has taken many, many, many years and there's still an awful lot of work to go. Uh, what would you say about this whole overnight success thing and, and what it's taken you to get where you are and what your journey's ahead of you? Uh, overnight success is really interesting. Um, I haven't got there yet. I, I, I really don't think. But when I do think back in this last section of my little journey, if you like, 
Daughter of the Mari came out in the December, so I haven't even been out there for two years as far as my books um, go. So I I have a sense of things being very whirlwind, but um, as far as the writing goes, you you do learn a hell of a lot if you're actually. I'm going to. This will sound really funny present while you're writing yes it comes straight from the head onto the keyboard and away you go and all the rest of it but suddenly you'll write something and and you need to be very present as to how that transcribes from your your thoughts to to the keyboard and I guess that's what your first draft is all about which is usually absolute rubbish um for instance in the book that's due out for 2020 um, I'm about 33,000 words in, which is, let's say, just on a third of, of the finished book. And I've written the first paragraph at least 33 times. So you, you learn as you go how, first of all, about your own style. So you do have to be very present when you're, uh, should I say, listening to that or, or watching that. Um, and I do have very strong beta reader who tells me that I've gone off my own voice, which is interesting or that I need to um, bring back the diary writing, which I guess is the same thing. So I'm, I'm very aware that I have a style um, and that I need to be present when it's, when it's doing its thing. I, I, can't, I sort of describe it as a third party. Um, uh, that's about the best way I can describe it. I mean, when, I, when I'm chatting, when I'm down at the coffee shop or, or talking to Mel or whatever I might be doing, I'm... I'm actually just me, but when I'm writing, I'm, I'm actually, I think there's a third party in there somewhere. Yeah, yeah. and I think that, uh, I think spending a lot of time on your own, uh, mm. I guess immersing yourself in your fiction, mm. that's, I find it very, very difficult when I'm trying to do dozens of things. Mm. To I've always said it takes all day to write for half a day because you need that whole yep. day to get your mind in the that's space. Right. And That's I've always right. said that even when I wrote The Miner's Wife. And mm. I'm taking 2019 off everybody just to write my fiction because yeah. I'm not getting anywhere by not doing that. And everything that I write, you know how they say, oh, you can just jot down 10 minutes while you're sitting in the doctor's surgery. I'm going, give me a break. <laughs> and people do it and they churn this stuff yeah. out. But mm. whether you're present and focused and writing, I guess to the depth that you need to do to write a really good character is another thing, isn't it? Uh, it is because you, you, I run the risk of my characters all sounding the same, although I have a visual of them and I know perfectly well that they're not the same. Um, but you're right about uh, spending that time on your own. And I and, and when I do go to my little um, place of work, my, my gin joint, um, I actually say to them, I've been time travelling, just give me a minute, I, I need to be talking 21st century English again and so on. So um, it is quite amazing how quickly you can become immersed and it's also a discipline. It's a training. So if if there were one thing I would say to people who were setting out on the journey in particular is don't end up underestimate how tough you have to be on yourself in a disciplined sense. Yeah, you have to be tough on yourself. Uh, gin joint. Now, anyone who follows Dari on her Facebook page, there is an awful lot of uh, gin jokes and a bottle of gin, and they come from people like Tia Cooper, I must admit. Uh, <laughs> tell us what the gin joint is, because I didn't have a clue, and it was one of my questions for you today. What okay. is this bottle of gin about? 
Um, Kangaroo Island Spirits or Kangaroo Island Distillery is um, uh, a, a boutique gin distillery here on Kangaroo Island. Um, one of the, or probably the first dedicated Australian gin distillery in the country, started about 12 years ago. But I work out there and we're having our second little book launch out there this afternoon. Um, and uh, so I decided that because the Widow of Ballarat was set in an era where alcohol or grog was just totally rife and gin was around, gin was imported, um, I thought, well, that's going to be interesting. I'll, I'll see what I can do there. So there's a little line in the book which refers to Mrs. Lark's gin. And so we will be launching a new label and a new gin this afternoon called Mrs. Lark's Fruit Gin as featured in The Widow of Ballarat. And that will be on a label. And um, I can certainly uh, email you the label, Mel. And uh, so that is quite a delicious gin made with our, um, our wild gin and apple and it will have a pear infusion. So it's, it's, and it's an absolutely delightful gin. So if you're into your gin, uh, do look up Kangaroo Island Spirits uh, online. Um, and so hopefully later on this afternoon, uh, we'll be able to post on, on Facebook and so on. Yeah, so. I'm going to reference that in the show notes, everybody. What a delightful story. And it took us 45 <laughs> minutes to get to it. I can't believe it. Now you have your own gin joint. So that's your writing room. No, no, not at all. No, my my writing room is um, a room in, in my house, which which has a, a day bed in it and lots of writing gear and all sorts of things. If I turn the camera around, would you would you are you going to be able to see things? Yeah, uh, yeah. It's it's very low key, very ordinary. Um, there's my my brag board there, um, painting behind me. Nothing much. Where have we got around here? My day bed is my dog there. There he is, Lord Hamish. Um, so it's just a it's just a very simple um, room in the house. But I go out to the gin joint to get myself keep myself in the twenty first century. So um, I work in dispatch out there, doing um, sending the delightful gin out. Are you laughing? I love it. I am just beside myself. And then I think I've, the best and then I work on the cellar door, selling all this wonderful gin. Yeah. Now here we have one of our top Australian authors, moonlighting as a <laughs> as a, as a barmaid. I I think that is a I, that's a typical Australian story, you know the mm. um, and it's from the bush. It's from the nineteenth century. We can we can make a new novel out of that, Darian. <laughs> uh, that's what that's what John and Sarah out at Chaos Spirits would hope to happen. But anyhow, we flagged Mrs. Lark. Um, and the Larks, John and Sarah Lark, own Kangaroo's um, distillery. So we've flagged that in the middle of Ballarat. So she goes back a little way. I love it. Hey, this is called product placement. Um, <laughs> advertisers eat your heart out. Um, it's actually, um, you've totally distracted me from my podcast now. Uh, as Dari was giving me a little tour of her room there, everyone, you've got all these beautiful old-fashioned maps framed and hanging around the place. That is um, a true history lover's, um, I guess, writing den, isn't it? Yeah, it keeps me. It keeps because I keep the space just for writing. Um, uh, as soon as I enter the door, the portal, if you like, um, and I'm, and I am trying to keep myself engaged in what I do because at times you can sit here, and all you want to do is get up and do the washing or whatever. So it, if if I if I'm entering a a space that is just writing, it it does help to uh, focus 
me. Yeah. And that's one of the writing habits that we, we have to remember, everyone. Uh, and your subconscious plays an awful uh, awful big role in that and writing habits and all the rest of it. Going across or entering the portal uh, is a trick that really works. And then you see your maps and you see everything. I've surrounded my room. I'm doing Queensland's rail history and I've got all these beautiful old history maps uh, yep. and they're just gorgeous. And that's what drew my eye to what you've got there because they are writing prompts, aren't they? Yes, they are. And one question I'm always asked is why the late 19th century? And I honestly can't give you a definitive except that it draws me. Um, although I was very much intrigued by the 1850s and the 60s going through this particular um, uh, book and the research there. But uh, the late 18th century, uh, 19th century is, is something that just draws me. So I, I need to be able to pinpoint that. It's in there somewhere back in the back of house here that drives the whole show pointing to the back of my head. Um, I think Stephen King calls it the boys in the basement, so I call it the back of house as opposed to the front of house. So that's a nod to my own hospitality. Yeah, and I think it's your brain. Um, Daria's talking about her back of brain where she stores or or I I guess some things are intuitive and you you have that passion and you have that love. Uh, And I know I I mentioned Tia Cooper because I see the pair of you um, in my mind at the same same time. Uh, Tia writes about her area and the history of her area and those beautiful, um, I've forgotten the name of them, out the back of Newcastle there, all that that beautiful countryside she has out there to play with. Uh, Okay, I'm going to finish up. I'm going to let Derry goes. She's been very generous and she's got to go out and do her soft launch of her book, which is exciting. Uh, the writing life, what do you say? The writing life? I wouldn't have it any other way. I finally got here and I'm not letting it go. So um, uh, somebody asked me the other day, what will I be doing in five years? Five years will go so fast. I intend to have been fully occupied at the keyboard and um and hopefully, calling myself a storyteller, I hope I I, uh, I can deliver on that and and just chug away at it. I, I just love it. So this writing life, that's good good for me. I'm I'm happy. And I think that's a really good place to to wind it up for our Christmas edition of Writer on the Road. Just very quickly, how many hours a day do you spend in there? Um, I'm in here on the dot uh, about eight thirty, and uh, I probably probably finish properly by about four and I'll drag it out to five o'clock but how productive that's been uh, is often um, you know a little bit fluid but um, generally speaking I think you could say a good five hours solid um, might get me two and a half three thousand words Wow. Yeah. And that, and that's really, really good. Okay. Um, now are you allowed to tell us, um, the working titles of your 19 and 20 books or is that under wraps? Well, I, I have the greatest difficulty, um, naming my books. So the, the one out next year is, is definitely part of the Murray series. So it'll have Murray in the title, but just what it will be, I don't know. But the one in 2020, um, it, my working title is either The Accidental, oh, her name is Elsa Goody, The Accidental Bushranger, or Elsa Goody, The Incidental Bushranger. But we haven't quite worked out a 19th century word that would cover both of those style of things. So, and, of course, the bushrangers were well and truly said and done by the time poor old Ben Hall got done, and he was, or Ned Kelly, they were 1870s. So, um Anyway, it's, it's fun to write this one. So that's oh, 
And hey, feminist rule, we need some female bush rangers. And I'm best, you know, they're always good. And things, the bad things that they do, we just overlook, don't we? We just overlook, yeah. Yeah, we don't. We don't. <laughs> I don't write that bit. All right. Uh, Merry Christmas, Dari. Uh, thinking of you and all the best with all your, I uh, guess, gin distilling and book launching. Thank you, Mel, and Merry Christmas to you and your girls. Okay. Thanks very much for having me. Always a pleasure.